0: And our passage for today is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Now, obviously, we cannot go through every verse. We cannot go through every section of the Beatitudes and not even all of chapter five, or it is a 30 to 40 minute podcast. And I know I will lose half of you in the process. So what I'm going to do is just pick out some early passages and deal with those and uh, help you to understand something of what's going on. Jesus has now been for some time uh, working his way around the lake from the headquarters in Kfar Nahum. Kfar Nahum is translated Capernaum. It's the village, the town of, Kfar, that's what that means, of uh, Nahum, the prophet. And so the village of Nahum, or the town of Nahum, it is the place where Jesus chose to headquarter his Galilean ministry, which was where his disciples came from, all but one. And that was Judas from Kariot, Ish-Kariot, the man from Kariot, which is in Judea. And so outside of Jerusalem, uh, up near Bethel, as a matter of fact, between Bethel and Shiloh this is an important time in the life of Jesus because he is calling his disciples unto himself people are coming by the thousands to hear him and Jesus seeing the multitudes went up into a mountain and when he was seated his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying and so then we go into what is called the Beatitudes now let me just set the background for you for this Sermon on the Mount. First of all, I want to remind you, because repetition is the mother of learning, that the Sea of Galilee is in a basin. It is part of the Syrian African Rift that starts in northern Syria and goes all the way to central east Africa. It's about a 4,000 mile crack in the earth. The deepest part of that crack is what we call the Dead Sea, just below Jerusalem, near the city of Jericho. It is a huge crack in the earth that can be seen from space. Now, a great body of water called the Dead Sea, or uh, Yam HaMelech, the Salt Sea, in the Bible is just one of the bodies of water. There were two more. There's only one, and then a smaller version of what was in the Hula Valley, the Lake Hula. And that was uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, between the Sea of Galilee and the ancient uh, city border town of Dan. It was a Hula Valley, and uh, it was almost like a swamp. It had become a swamp, but if you look back prior to the state of Israel, maps of the World War I period, you will see a lake that is no longer there. Now, there's a small lake that they have brought back into existence because of the wildlife and so forth of that valley. But the Hula Valley is guarded by an ancient town called Hazor, Hatzor in Hebrew, and it is uh, to the north. Uh, The Golan is across the valley, to the east and to the west are the high mountains of Naftali, what would be called the Upper Galilee. But the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet. The face of it is 700 feet below the level of the Mediterranean. So when it says that he went up on a mountain, anywhere you go from the Sea of Galilee, you're going up on a mountain, except when you go out the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, which is a valley, part of that Syrian-African rift, or you go north, due north, then you're following the Jordan River north and it is a valley, but on the sides, it's just like a big theater right near Capernaum is a place that I believe the Sermon on the Mount would have taken place either there or near because it is a natural theater. And by theater, I'm talking about what we would call an amphitheater. Now, what we call an amphitheater is a semicircle that has a uh, bema or a raised place usually or a flat place in the middle of that semicircle. Now, that is actually a theater. And uh, from the ancient times until until a recent history uh, it was called a theater uh, Amphi means both and so what is an amphitheater, if we're going to be technical and correct and accurate, is what we would call an arena, because it's two halves put together. What we call an amphitheater is actually just a theater. And there is a natural theater just above the lake and the fishing villages that were there, just above Capernaum, and I believe that's where Jesus would have gone. And the pictures that you see of the Sermon on the Mount, many times Jesus is up above the people talking down to them. That is the opposite of what it would have been. Jesus would have been in a theater setting. He would have been on the flat piece of ground and all around him encircling him in a half circle of natural mountain terrain would have been the place where the people would have been. There's a place just above the Sea of Galilee that is between the Valley of Gennesaret and Capernaum. It is a place uh, called Heptapagon, now called uh, Tagba, But Heptapagon means the place of seven springs. And it would have been uh, a place where more than likely Jesus would have had breakfast with His disciples after His resurrection. Just above that, and between Capernaum, is the place that is now called the Mount of Beatitudes. And I do not believe that that is where the Sermon on the Mount would have been. It would have been below that in what is a natural theater. There, Jesus would have stood and the people would have been listening to him, and there would have been a natural sound reflection of his voice where he could have spoken to thousands just in a much of a normal speaking voice. This makes sense for a lot of reasons, and as you look in the text beginning at verse 3 and going all the way down through verse 10, you have what is called the Beatitudes. The word beatitude literally means uh, blessing. Those who are in the way of or in the attitude or in the thought process and the spirit of blessing. And uh, you have the word blessed. And the word blessed actually means to be large. It talks about living large, being large. Not in the sense of fat, but uh, being gratuitous, uh, being blessed, being happy. That's the whole concept behind blessing here. It, it's having the divine favor of God. It is uh, having the pleasure of God, if you will, upon someone's life. So this is what the Beatitudes are all about. And when it comes to verse 10, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Yes, that means hounded. Those who always have someone nipping at their heels because of righteousness sake, not because we're obnoxious and we are proud and arrogant, but because of righteousness sake, because we're doing the right thing following Jesus, living for Him, it says, "...for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And then he said blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. You see many times people speak against us and we bring persecution on ourselves because we are not living godly lives. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about those as the disciples of the New Testament would live out. Became martyrs. The word martyrs the word for witness and we call a martyr someone who dies for their faith. Well, the reason we do that is because those who witnessed in the New Testament died because of that witness, and the term martyreo, witness, became martyr because those who witnessed and bore witness of the resurrection of Jesus after His death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, those people had to prove their sincerity by giving their lives because they were persecuted unto death. And so he says. Rejoice. Now, this is the opposite of what we're getting today because you see, if you listen to most pastors, the sign and blessing of God upon your life is health and wealth and everything going well for you. Life's a bed of roses. But that's not what verse 10, verse 11 says. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you, when they curse you, when they speak evil of you, when they persecute you, hound you, bite at your heels, and say all kinds of evil against you. When people say ugly things about you, they lie on you. He said, rejoice, rejoice. Now, isn't that the opposite of what we're hearing today? Maybe the reason we're getting the opposite results of what they got in the New Testament when just a handful turned the world upside down. You see, we think we have to be in the lap of luxury to sense the blessing of God. Just the opposite in the Bible. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt was a very important commodity. Many of the Roman soldiers were paid by salt. And Israel had plenty of salt because of Yam HaMelech. The word for Melech is salt. So is the salt sea. And there was plenty of salt there then. There's plenty of salt today. And the Romans mined that. And they paid people. That's where the word salary comes from is salt. There's so many things that could be said here, but I think you get the idea you can look it up for yourself but salt was used for seasoning salt was used for purification salt was used for healing salt was used for keeping meat keeping fish keeping so many things fresh and it was a preservative So Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. All the things that I just said, plus it was an irritant. If it got into an open wound, it would irritate. It would heal. Yes. I often tell people when we're in Israel, I say, please, whatever you do, men and ladies, do not shave. Ladies, don't shave your legs. Don't shave under your arms. Men, don't shave your beard. Don't Please don't shave anywhere because if you're going to get in the Dead Sea, you're going to be set on fire. And the reason is that salt. The Dead Sea is thirty-three to thirty-six percent salt in places, and you go in uh, compared to ocean water, which is five to six percent at the heaviest. Then you've you've got five times the saltiness of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Pacific, or the Atlantic, and so it will set you on fire. And so Jesus said, "You're the salt of the earth. That is, you're the preservative. You're the healing force. You're the, the what gives seasoning." But he said, if the salt has lost its flavor, that is, it's what makes it seasoned to do all those things that I just mentioned, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. You see, when salt was no good as a preservative and it had lost its savoriness, its saltiness, then it was used as a base for roads. And that's what that would pack in very very much like what we would have with what we call pug today, which is that fine gravel that's mixed with dirt and gravel and grit and it all comes together and almost forms kind of a, a soft concrete. When it dries and it's wet and it dries, it, it, it becomes a, a good base for a road. That's what he said about Saul. Then he said, you're the light of the world. Now, Jesus said he was the light, but he also called us the light. He's the sun. We're the moon. We reflect the light. We don't have light within us. We're like Moses, whose face was on fire with the glory of God, but he put a veil over because he knew that it would fade away outside of the presence of God. So it is with us. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do you light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." Now, if you do not believe that a trip to Israel will make the Bible come alive, you come with me and I'll take you to the place that I've been talking about. You can see where Jesus, the area where he would have been standing and the people would have been facing the sea. They would have been looking east, actually a little southeast. And as they did, they would be looking east, southeast would be the directional coordinates. And if you look East, southeast from where the Mount of Beatitudes, which is between Heptopagon and the Gennesaret Valley and the town of Capernaum. Up on the hillside, you will see across the Sea of Galilee, which the people of Capernaum, the people of Magdala, the people of all of the eastern side would have looked across at night and seen a beautiful Roman city called Hippus. Now, Hippus is the Greek name, Susita is the Latin name, and it means horse. A river horse is a hippo, that's the word for horse, hippoos, and potamus, which is the word for river. Hippopotamus is a river horse, and that's its Latin name. Most of the animals have Latin names. And English names that we have, but many times we just use the name Hippopotamus, and and most people do not realize that means river horse. And so the word Hippos was the name of the city that is just across the Sea of Galilee, and all of the people that were there when Jesus was saying, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Were people mostly from the western side that would every night on a clear night look across the way and see Hippus, which is raised up high, high above the sea on a hill that's just kind of set apart by itself. And every night about twilight, they would see the Roman torches of the city because it was a great city, a grand city. And it was one of the 10 cities of the Decapolis, all of the 10 cities of the Decapolis were on the eastern side of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, save one, and that was the ancient city of Bethshan, which was called in the New Testament Scythopolis because of the Scythian mercenaries who came down from the area, which would now be the area around the Black Sea and and Russia, and uh, they would come down and they would uh, sell their services as mercenaries to the people of the valley and of the land of Israel. And so, all to say, that city that sat on the hill, I believe, is Hippos. As a matter of fact, that would have been the place where the demoniac that was filled with a legion of demons, that Jesus cast out that legion, thousands of demons into the swine, and they ran down that bluff and ran into the water. He would have been a citizen, more than likely, of this ancient city of Decapolis. Deca means ten, polis means city in Greek. Decapolis, Decapolis, is the ten cities. They were ten city-states, Greek city-states, that were uh, incorporated into Rome and a territory of Rome when that area was conquered. All to say, I would love to spend another 20 minutes just on chapter 5, but we're moving along tomorrow and to chapter 6 as we walk on the way. This is Tony Chris.